thank you for listening to Xenozoic Xenophiles, a fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth. And this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mark Schultz, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We're doing this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the worlds of Xenozoic Tales created by Mark Schultz. In this episode, we'll be covering Xenozoic Tales Issue 2 from May 1987, which features three stories by Mark Schultz. And we'll also be announcing the details of a contest, so stick around for that. In addition, we'll be covering the original Xenozoic short story published in Death Rattle No. 8 in 1986. Of course, I'm sure that some of you are probably wondering why we didn't cover that story in our first episode. While that story was published first, it wasn't actually set first because Hannah had already arrived at the City in the Sea and she and Jack already know each other. It was sort of a preview to promote the series, but wasn't the first story in the sequence chronologically. When it is included in the various trade paperback reprints, the story is generally included between the first and second stories from issue two, because the first story from issue two picks up right where issue one left off, and the second and third stories from issue two are a two-parter. So that original Xenozoic story fits perfectly in the middle of issue two, and that's where we'll be covering it in this episode. And later in the episode, we'll share some of the great comments and feedback we've received since last time. We explained a little about our title last time, but we'll quickly mention that again here for any new listeners. Of course, Xenozoic is part of the title of the comic. Xeno is defined as something that is strange, different, or foreign, while Zoic refers to a geological period of time. So Xenozoic basically means strange era or strange age. And Xenophile is someone who is interested in foreign lands and foreign cultures. That word describes us because we are definitely interested in the foreign lands and cultures described in Xenozoic Tales. Of course, many of you might be more familiar with the series under the title Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, as it has occasionally been called. The original series, created, written, and primarily illustrated by Mark Schultz, started with the backup story we just mentioned, found in the pages of the anthology comic Death Rattle No. 8 in 1986, and then ran under the title Xenozoic Tales for 14 issues from 1987 to 1996. All of those issues were published in black and white by Kitchen Sink Press. In 1990 and 91, Marvel's Epic Comics reprinted the first six issues of the black and white series in color using the title Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. In 1993, there was an excellent Saturday morning cartoon series, again using the title Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, that ran for a single season of 13 episodes. While it hasn't been released on DVD, it is available from digital services like Amazon Video. There were various action figures and a toy Cadillac released to tie in with the animated series. And there was also a Cadillacs and Dinosaurs computer game in the early 90s that we really enjoyed. And in 1994, there were three three-issue miniseries, also using the title Cadillacs and Dinosaurs, that were published by Topps Comics. Those issues were based on the continuity of the TV series as opposed to the original comics, and those issues were primarily written by Roy Thomas, working with various artists. It really isn't surprising that the alternate title became so popular for a time because it's a perfect shortcut description of the series, which definitely features both Cadillacs and dinosaurs. However, because of the use of the word Cadillac, General Motors actually owns the rights to that title. So anytime you see anything published as Cadillacs and dinosaurs, the publisher has to license the use of the title from GM. Over the course of this podcast, we will focus initially on the 14 issues from Mark Schultz. After that, we'll probably cover the animated series and the three miniseries from Tops. And this is also an exciting time to be revisiting the series because after 20 years, Mark Schultz is working on a new Xenozoic Tales graphic novel. If you're interested in keeping up with what's ahead for the title, 
we encourage you to join the Facebook page, Mark Schultz Xenozoic Tales and Other Stories, for all of the latest news and information. If you don't have the series but want to pick it up, there are some options. You can check your local library as recommended by Mark Sweeney of the I'm the Gun blog and podcast. He had great luck with that himself. The individual issues can be quite difficult to find, so I don't think Professor Allen is going to find them in the quarter bin, but there have been multiple trade paperback collections over the years. Some use the original Xenozoic Tales title, while others use the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs title. Most of these trade paperback collections are now out of print, but you can usually find them used at reasonable prices. There is a recent collection simply titled Xenozoic that contains all of the stories written and illustrated by Mark Schultz. It's a really nice collection that we highly recommend, but there's one thing you should know. Most issues of Xenozoic Tales feature a story written and illustrated by Mark Schultz and a short story written by Mark Schultz but drawn by Steve Stiles. The Xenozoic Collection only contains the stories written and illustrated by Mark Schultz. It does not include the stories written by Mark Schultz but drawn by Steve Stiles. And if you would like some music to listen to while reading the series, then consider picking up Songs from the Xenozoic Age. It's available on CD or digitally from both Amazon Music and iTunes. It's an eclectic mix of fun songs by Chris Christensen that are inspired by the series, and it features album art by Mark Schultz. Coming up in just a couple of weeks, we plan to attend Heroes Con in Charlotte, where Mark Schultz will be a guest. So if there are any listeners out there who will also be attending Heroes Con, send us an email and let us know. Plus, since we'll be at the convention, we're going to try to pick up a few extra items, and we're going to have a fun contest to give those items away. So listen closely at the end of the episode for details on how to enter the contest. We really enjoy sharing listener feedback, and all of the exchanges with listeners on social media are fun. So please write in and let us know what you think of the issues we cover or the podcast in general. We'll provide our email address and other ways to contact us at the end of the episode. Also, if you enjoy the show, please consider checking out our other podcasts that are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Trekker Talk is a fan podcast devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of the sci-fi comic Trekker by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. And Warlord Worlds is a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, and Green Arrow. Ron Randall, Mike Grell, and Mark Schultz are our three favorite comic creators. Their stories are filled with adventure and interesting characters, and their art is always vibrant and dynamic. We'll include links to those other podcasts in our show notes. But for now, let's dig into this month's issue. Xenozoic Tales number 2, May 1987. Editor, Dave Schreiner. Letters, Denise Prowl. Publisher, Dennis Kitchen. Production, Jan Manweiler. Original cover colors, Ray Fehrenbach. Reprint edition, cover colors, also by Ray Fehrenbach. Interior colors by Randall Burnt, Ray Fehrenbach, and Denise Prowl. It's the early 26th century. The world has undergone great geological upheavals, creating global catastrophes. Few people survived. Those that did found themselves living in isolated tribes in a very different world and a strange ecosystem. It's a new age known as the Xenozoic Era. The cover to the original black and white edition features a scene of Jack and Hannah in a blue Cadillac racing from a storm as slithers rush past them as they also run from the storm. The cover for the color reprint edition features a scene of a mammoth charging toward Hannah as Jack leaps from a tree toward the mammoth. Both covers look great, and both are related to stories in the issue. Rogue, written and penciled by Mark Schultz, inks by Steve Stiles. Our story picks up where the previous issue left off as the convoy arrives at the Calhoun Mines. 
Jack's friend Mustafa Cairo has been waiting impatiently for his arrival. Mustafa's an engineer, and he finished working on the smelter a month ago and has been stuck at the mines waiting for a return ride. As they walk to the director's hut, Mustafa tells Jack to be ready for a request to help with a nasty problem. Jack reports in to Director Wister, telling him he only made it with nine men, one short due to an accident. Wister is being his typically spineless self as he tries unsuccessfully to bring up a topic. Finally, his assistant, Strunk, speaks up and tells Jack they are dealing with a rogue shivet, what we call a T-Rex. It's a man-eater and has already killed two men who strayed too far from the shelters. They want Jack to hunt it and kill it. Jack doubts the story. The mine has been in operation for years with no previous problems, plus he knows there are parts of a shivet carcass that would bring in lots of money on the black market. Jack suspects someone took a shot at the shivet and angered it, and that's the real reason it's been hanging around the mines. Strunk takes offense and begins touting the mine's success rate, and Jack turns and walks away. Outside, he enlists Hannah Dundee, who came along on the convoy as an observer, to use her tracking skills to find the shivet. After a brief introduction to Mustafa, the three set off into the wilderness. After finding signs of the shivet's trail, they return with a group of miners to dig a large trap and cover it with brush. They are all looking off into the distance where they expect the shivet to come from, when Hannah realizes the shivet has circled around behind them and it begins to charge. <laughs> Hannah and Jack raise their guns. They each fire one round and then another, but the shivet continues to charge, getting closer every second. Then Jack's gun jams, and while he tries to clear the jam, Hannah stays focused, firing a third, fourth, fifth, and sixth shot. The shivet stumbles and crashes to the ground directly in front of our two heroes. Jack examines the dead carcass and sees a bullet is lodged in the shivet's eye, blinding it, irritating it, driving it crazy. The bullet is from a Weatherby 460, a very rare gun, and Jack suspects where he will find it. Jack barges into Wister's office and finds Strunk with the Weatherby, just as he suspected. Strunk begins to panic. He knows what Jack is like and assumes he will kill him. Instead, Jack says he will take the Weatherby in exchange for Strunk's freedom, and then he even tells Strunk he had better run and collect the choice parts from the shivet carcass before the vultures get to it. Strunk races from the hut. Jack turns toward Hannah and hands her the gun, saying, You saved us today. This is a good gun. You deserve it. As the convoy loads up to head back to the city in the sea, Hannah shares her surprise that Jack let Strunk go. Jack comments that he's sure Strunk feels no responsibility for blinding the shivet, which led it to attack the camp, resulting in the death of two miners. Jack is also sure that Strunk never learned about the shivets he's so ready to kill for money. For instance, he's sure Strunk doesn't know that they mate for life. Meanwhile, in the wilderness, Strunk is using a sharp knife to cut into the shivet's carcass when he suddenly finds the sun blocked out by a giant shadow. The opening scene of the mines is very intricate. Buildings, scaffolding, vehicles, and an expansive landscape are all stunning. While just a couple of pages later, there's a more intimate image of Hannah sitting by herself among the rocks. The shading is beautiful. Both images show off Mark Schultz's abilities in very different ways. The sequence of the T-Rex charging toward Jack and Hannah is fantastic. Alternating panels show the dinosaur getting closer, interspersed with repeated images of Jack and Hannah firing their guns. The expressions on their faces get more and more intense as the T-Rex gets closer. It is very suspenseful, and you really worry for our two heroes. And the way Jack set up Strunk at the end of the story was perfect. It is slightly reminiscent of the earlier story about the poacher, yet still very different and effective. 
I really like the way the shadow suddenly covers Strunk. Hello listeners, I am Dr. G, the man of nerdology. I am the host of The Secret Sagas of the Multiverse, part of the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. Secret Sagas of the Multiverse is a review and discussion show where I and my rogues gallery of co-hosts take on topics related to comic books, superheroes, genre fiction, movies, television, and much more. We look at comics and comic characters across the many different media out there, from original print source material to the recent renaissance of television, movies, and digital media. If you love geek culture as much as we do, then tune in to our semi-weekly podcast series. Episodes of this and other Pulp to Pixel podcasts can be found at pulptopixel.blogspot.com, the Pulp to Pixel podcast Facebook page, through iTunes, or through Stitcher under the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. Man, you come right out of a comic book. The Pulp to Pixel Podcasts. Exploring the media multiverse of geek culture. Xenozoic, written and illustrated by Mark Schultz. Jack is leading Hannah and a search party deep into the swamps. They are looking for Fessenden Station. Fessenden was the leader of a group of scientists that Jack led into the swamp two years earlier. Fessenden and the scientists believe they could find the secret to creating stronger and healthier plants by studying the swamp. Initially, the scientists maintained regular communication with the city and the sea, but now it has been six months since anyone has heard from them. The search party is finding it difficult to make their way through the dark and humid swamp. It feels as though it's suffocating them. Then they see a reptilian slither coming toward them, and then another, and then another. The slithers are trying to encircle them, it isn't natural, and Jack encourages everyone to keep moving quickly before they can cut them off. Just then, the search party sees crumbling shacks in the distance. It's the remnants of Fessenden's station. As they enter the station, they see the hunched body of Fessenden. He looks sickly and emaciated, but otherwise unconcerned as he stares out into the swamp. Jack asks where the others are. Gone, Jack. Out there, replies Fessenden as he points out into the swamp. A worried Jack tells Fessenden he wants to take a quick look around, and then they will all go home. To which Fessenden replies, I am home, Jack. Jack and one of the other men with him begin to search the swamp surrounding the station when a giant cellback attacks, killing the other man. Jack starts to run and then sees the skeletal remains of the other scientists. Then he turns and sees several bizarre creatures unlike anything he's seen before. They look like brains with eyes and tentacles. Jack runs back to the station, demanding Fessenden tell him what happened. Fessenden tells him how the scientists were succumbing to the swamp. The heat, insects, diseases, and humidity were slowly killing them. But their experiments were showing signs of success as plants began to thrive and yield crops in the poor soil of the swamp. Fessenden decided to expand his experiments to the swamp's animal life and distilled a serum he thought would help the scientists adapt to the harsh environment. It worked at first as they all became more tolerant of the swamp. 
Then they learned the serum also gave them the ability to communicate with the creatures in the swamp. And finally, there was a physical change. And now only he remains. But his time has come. As Fessenden begins to claw at his face, his eyes drop from their sockets, and his brain appears to ooze from his skull and slides down into the swampy waters to join the other scientists. Jack sets fire to the station and all of the scientists' papers and notes, burning everything to the ground as the search party heads back to the city. The images of the swamp are intimidating. Tall trees stretch up and block the sky as gnarling roots reach down into the murky water. The sequence of the various reptile-like dinosaurs beginning to surround our heroes is frightening and creates a real feeling of panic. The hazards of walking through it are well illustrated. You can even sense the heat and humidity from the sweat on the characters' faces, and the panel filled with mosquitoes made me itch. Meanwhile, the brain-like creatures that the scientists have morphed into look really creepy. You want to turn the page as quickly as possible to avoid looking at them. Yuck. The Film and Water Podcast, a weekly show about movies old and new, hosted by obsessive movie nerd Rob Kelly and a rotating series of special guests. From sci-fi to horror, dramas to family films, comedies to adventure epics, we watch it all. The Film and Water Podcast is part of the Fire and Water Family of Podcasts, available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.blogspot.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Mammoth Pitfall, written and illustrated by Mark Schultz. West of the city in the sea, Jack is helping Hannah set a trap for a mammoth. Hannah wants to conduct a scientific experiment to see if the giant animals can be tamed because they would be able to carry five times as much as any overland vehicles. Jack has serious doubts, but he's willing to help out with her experiment. They've set up a wall of logs above the entrance to a box canyon that a mammoth frequents. The next time it enters the canyon... Hannah will shoot the trigger from a safe perch high in the rocks, releasing the wall of logs and trapping the mammoth. As they watch the mammoth enter the canyon, neither of them notice that someone else is watching the two of them from an even higher perch in the rocks. Hannah's excellent aim triggers the wall of logs to fall on the first shot, but then a rock slide is triggered from above, surprising the two of them. Jack finds himself half-buried under rocks while Hannah slides down the steep hill with a pile of rocks all the way to the bottom of the canyon. A large and powerful hand grabs Jack's hair and lifts his head. It's Hammer Terhune, the brother of Wrench Terhune, who was the sniper that Jack killed the day that Hannah arrived in the city in the sea. Holding her aching head, Hannah stands up only to find her science experiment angrily charging toward her. She presses her back against the wall of rock, waiting to be gored by the tusk of the giant mammoth, when suddenly its tusks get entangled in the giant roots wrapped all around the rocks. Hannah quickly takes the opportunity to begin climbing the rocks to safety. At the top of the cliff, she sees that Hammer Terhune is forcing Jack to march toward his Cadillac. His leg is injured from the falling rocks, making it slow going. As the Cadillac drives away, both Jack and Hammer are surprised to see the mammoth running behind them. Hammer begins to scream for Jack to drive faster, but Jack is afraid they'll break an axle on the rough ground, and then there will be no way to escape the charging mammoth. Hammer presses his gun to Jack's temple. He's going to shoot him and then drive himself. He's sure he can drive faster and outrun the mammoth. Just then, a gunshot does ring out. 
But it isn't Hammer's gun. It's Hannah's gun. And Hammer slumps forward with a bullet hole in his head. She managed to hide in the back of the car as Jack and Hammer drove off. As the story ends, the Cadillac is still being pursued by the mammoth that is clearly still chasing after Hannah. Mammoth Pitfall is a great little story. It reminds the reader that Hannah is a scientist, and while her plan doesn't seem reasonable to Jack, it illustrates that Jack has already started to respect her since he's willing to help out. I appreciated the appearance of Hammer Terhune. It did a nice job of reaching back to that earlier story when we were told that Jack was familiar with the Terhune family, and now we see another member of that family. I also especially like the last panel on the second page of this story. It is laid out from a viewpoint behind Hammer, above the canyon, so the reader gets to see the situation at a glance. I also like the way the mammoth is drawn. It looks great throughout the story. Although I've never seen one in real life, I'm convinced that it would look and move just like the illustrations here. The sequence of Hannah preparing herself to be gored by the mammoth is very well done. At first you see the fear in her face, and then she squints her eyes together to avoid seeing the inevitable. And then, when nothing happens, she opens only one eye to see why she is still alive. The changing expressions on her face clearly represent what she is feeling. Hi, I'm Kyle Benning, and I love comics. In fact, I love them so much that I ramble on about them on a number of podcasts, all on one feed, found under the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun banner. I talk about comics with extra page counts, like Treasury Comics, Prestige Format Books, DC's Dollar Comics, Marvel's Giant Size Specials and King Size Daniels, and much, much more. I also love to talk about DC's Christ on Multiple Earth crossovers, free comics from Special Promos, Free Comic Book Day, Star Wars, My Life as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles fan, random comic book back issues, and many other elements of geek culture that happen to strike my fancy. There's new content usually dropping at least once a week, and it's all found on one feed. You can subscribe via iTunes. Just search for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun in the iTunes Store or podcast app on your iPhone. Otherwise, you can follow the podcast at the King Size Comics Giant Size Fun blog headquarters, available at www.kingsizecomicsgiantsizefun.blogspot.com. That's all one word, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun.blogspot.com. Or follow on Facebook by simply searching for King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. So for snappy review and discussions on comics, new and old, usually done from the front seat of my car or my lunch break at work, check out King Size Comics Giant Size Fun. The Rules of the Game, written and penciled by Mark Schultz, inks by Steve Stiles. It is hours later. Jack and Hannah manage to make it back to the garage and close the steel doors behind them, but the mammoth has not given up. It repeatedly pounds the front doors. Jack is relaxing and reading a Cadillac owner's manual while Hannah stares out an upper window at the mammoth below. Hannah decides to take the opportunity to get to know Jack better. She wants to know why he is so well-respected and why he gets to make his own rules. Jack describes himself as a civic-minded risk-taker and says that lots of people in the city can use someone like that. In return, he asks for automobile parts for payment. He shows off his garage filled with dozens of Cadillacs in various stages of being rebuilt. As the tour ends, Jack's assistant points out that the mammoth has finally given up and left, and Jack invites Hannah out for a leisurely drive. <laughs> They drive past a herd of Max, what we would call Triceratops, and turn to stay clear of them. Then they see a flock of vultures in the distance. They go to investigate and discover the mammoth. While returning to its home, it apparently had a run-in with the herd of Max and didn't survive. Both are shocked and saddened at the turn of events. 
Then Jack notices a storm in the distance and decides they should head back. But Hannah encourages him to let the storm catch up to them and then see if his precious Cadillac can outrun it. Jack gets angry at himself for even considering such a challenge. But in the end, he accepts and waits for the storm to get closer. As they begin to race the storm, it becomes quickly obvious that they can't outrun it. Heavy rains and winds cause visibility to drop to zero as the car slides over a hill on the slippery rocks and in the mud. The rainwater turns into a flash flood and begins to rush down the canyon, and the two are swept away into the distance. The next morning, they are surprised to wake and find themselves alive. They weren't crushed by debris. They weren't swallowed by a mudslide. They emerge from the darkness into the early morning light of dawn and find the floodwater swept them into the carcass of the dead mammoth. Its giant bones and thick hide protected them throughout the night. I particularly enjoyed the first part of this story. It was fun to see the very different reactions of Jack and Hannah in the way they dealt with the mammoth continuing to stalk them. The story also gives the reader and Hannah the chance to learn a little bit more about Jack and how he earned the respect of so many in the city. I like the large panel used to show Jack's garage with so many Cadillacs and Cadillac parts. The perspective is really good there. And it was a really nice moment when Jack invited Hannah out for a drive, though it becomes very bittersweet when they see the mammoth they had angered has now died as a result of their interference. The section with the storm and torrential rain is well illustrated. The landscape, storm clouds, and lightning are all impressive. The sequence of the Cadillac trying to outrace the storm is exciting, but I was a little disappointed by the setup. It just seemed out of character for both Hannah to issue the challenge and even more so for Jack to accept it. I would have preferred a slightly different setup for why they had to outrun the storm, but that's just a minor quibble since the sequence itself that follows is very exciting. Let's talk a bit about who's who and what's what in Xenozoic Tales. This is the 26th century, long after a series of geological cataclysms. What is known as the city in the sea in these stories is the island of Manhattan that is now partially submerged in the ocean, while the city of Wasoon was Washington, D.C. Jack Tenrek is an old blood mechanic, one of the few people who have learned how to repair the many machines left over from the distant past. While he can be gruff at times, he is more respected by residents than the governors who run the city. Hannah Dundee is a scientist and ambassador from Wasoon who has come to the city in the sea in the hopes of building cooperation between the two cities. And we get to meet Mustafa Cairo in this issue. He's an engineer and one of Jack's best friends. Next up is listener feedback when we share the emails and other messages we've received since last time. Thanks to everyone for all of the great comments. They add so much to the show. You've really helped get this new podcast off to a terrific start. So a big thank you to everyone who took the time to write in or to get in touch through social media. First, we must recognize Brian Mulvey. We have started three different podcasts, and in each case, the first person to email us at all three of the email addresses for those podcasts was Brian Mulvey. That's amazing, and we sincerely thank you, Brian. When we pointed that out to him, he referred to it as a hat trick. Thankfully, he explained that was a hockey reference, and we appreciate that education, Brian, because otherwise we would have assumed a hat trick was something a magician did. In that first message from Brian, he said, I tuned, I listened, I loved Xenozoic Xenophiles. I really thought the music was perfect, as well as the sound effects. It's an outstanding podcast on reptiles and muscle cars. Brian added, I was just reading Al Williamson's introduction to the Cadillacs and Dinosaurs kitchen sink book. High praise indeed. He compared Schultz to Raymond Foster, no less. Also, Frazetta and Wally Wood. His characters remind me of some of Frazetta's Johnny Comet art. 
We received kind praise from Ed Moore of Till Productions. He called the podcast an awesome Sutherland production. Those folks do it right. Give them a listen. You owe it to yourself. He added, I haven't read these in years. Time to dust them off so I can follow along. The first episode was groovy. Joe Crawford of For the Non-Discerning Reader blog called our first episode another smash hit by the creators of Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds. Robert Wolfman Bratcher wrote in saying, I'll be seeing Mark in a few weeks. I have all his works and I've known him for years. He even allowed me to do a similar comic to Xenozoic Tales. Only got some preliminary art done, but I loved the concept. And then Robert shared some of the art he had done with us. It includes Cadillacs and dinosaurs and some amazing art. It all looked outstanding. He even had a character that was a tribute to Mark Schultz that he called Schultzy. Wow, Robert, it was all amazing, and I know we'd all like to see that get published someday. We were happy to learn that Larry Looper, a.k.a. The Question on Twitter at VicSage2005, knows the language of the Xenozoic era. We could tell because his first comment to us was, Quahoon, I'm looking forward to listening to the upcoming Xenozoic Xenophiles podcast. We'll translate here for those who may be a little rusty. Quahoon is an exclamation that expresses excitement and surprise. Thanks, Larry. Eric Mannix, a.k.a. the King of Olympia or the Bobby Krogan, got in touch with us to let us know that Xenozoic Tells was covered on episode 30 of the podcast Out of the Fridge. He's a co-host for that show, and we listened and certainly enjoyed the episode and encourage everyone to give it a try. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. Karen Williams of Between the Pages wrote, I haven't read Xenozoic Tales in years. I remember it having gorgeous artwork and very good writing. Jeff Nettleton wrote, saying, I just finished listening to the new podcast, just as great as Trekker Talk and Warlord Worlds. As always, I can recall the issues from my brain based on your detailed synopses. I came to Xenozoic Tales kind of late. All through college, I kept hearing about Cadillacs and dinosaurs. I got hold of one or two of the epic color reprints, though not the beginning. Then finally, I came across one of the Kitchen Sink's book collections. I had seen the comparisons between Mark Schultz's work and Frank Frazetta's Thunder and could see what people meant, as well as comparisons to Al Williamson. Schultz's art was just amazing, with the clarity and detail and the exciting scenes. He also developed some complex characters, which quickly made it a favorite. I was already a sucker for post-apocalyptic futures where people were trying to reclaim the past, like the cartoon series Thundar, the animated Planet of the Apes, and the films and TV series to a lesser extent. I also loved Gold Key's Turok, with its more modern man facing dinosaurs. This had all of that. I checked out the animated series when it debuted and thought it was fantastic. Nelvana, the animation company, really went to town on it, and it looked great. The stories were good, too. They had to rein it in a bit since it was network TV, but not drastically so. I was happy to see that the characterizations were intact. Jeff has so much knowledge about comics, and we always like hearing from him. We learn so much. We'll end this section with the great comments we got through our first two iTunes reviews. The first is titled, The Best Podcast This Side of Trekker Talk or Warlord Worlds, and it's from Seiya Masinko. Darren and Ruth have done it again. With this show, their terrific trilogy of perfection is complete. If you love good art, good stories, and good podcasts, this is the place to be. Even if this genre isn't quite your thing, it's possible these hosts will make you a fan. Trust me, this is not to be missed. Thank you so much. That all means so much to us. And Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network says, Excellent. I did not read this comic book when it was coming out, but that doesn't matter. Ruth and Darren bring their stories to life in a great way. And this is another excellent podcast from a terrific podcasting team. Thank you, Professor Allen. (laughs) 
Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported the show on social media since the last episode. These are people who liked or shared posts from us on Twitter, Tumblr, or Facebook. Your support helps draw attention to the podcast, and we really appreciate all that each of you do. Before we start, let us say that if we miss a name, please let us know and we'll correct it next time. And also, forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just email us and let us know, and we'll be happy to correct that next time as well. So special thanks go out to Alexandra and Patrick Scardo, Andrew Leyland of Hey Kids Comics and the Two True Freaks Network, Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, Ashford of Feathers and Foes and Straight Outta Gallifrey, Ben Days of Ben Days of Our Lives, a comics nostalgia podcast, Brian Mulvey, Carolyn Wallace, Chris Franklin of the Supermates podcast, Chris Mounts, Clinton Robinson of the Coffee and Comics blog, Comics in the Golden Age with Mike and Chris, Cullen Stapleton of the Worst Podcast Ever, in name only, Dan O'Connor, David Fiore, Derek William Crabb, Diabolo Frank of the Idlehead of Diabolo Martian Manhunter blog, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology of Pulp to Pixel Podcasts, Ed Terry and Nick Moore of Till Productions, Eric Mannix, a.k.a. the King of Olympia from Out of the Fridge and Pages for All Ages, Gene Hendricks from The Hammer Strikes and Anime Freaks, Green Arrow Fan, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Popcast, Jeff Nettleton, Joe Crawford of For the Non-Discerning Readers Blog, Joe Fishman, John Baker, Jarrell Hamilton, Karen Williams of Between the Pages, Kyle Binning of King Size Comics and the Superman Captain Marvel Power Hour, Larry Looper Jr., a.k.a. The Question, at VicSage2005. Mark Sweeney from I'm the Gun blog and podcast. Martin Gray of Too Dangerous for a Girl. Michael Bailey of The Fortress of Baileytude. Michael Lane of Comics in the Golden Age. Mike Gillis of Radio vs. the Martians and Podcast de la Vista, baby. Nicholas Prom of Comic Reflections. Paul Hicks of Waiting for Doom. Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Rob Kelly of the Aquaman Shrine and the Film and Water Podcast. Robert Wolfman Bratcher. Ruth Reese. Ryan Daly of the Power of Fishnets and Secret Origins Podcasts. Sayo Masinko. Scott Hardesty of the band Joe Hero. You can hear their song just like Bruce Campbell did on the latest episode of Trekker Talk. Shag Matthews, a.k.a. Firestorm Fan from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Stephen Frey. Tim Wallace of Cord Industries, the Blue Beetle blog, and Van Z of the All-Star Comics Review Podcast. Thank you all so much. Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us at xenozoicxenophiles at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr under the name Xenozoic Xenophiles. And you can always visit xenozoicxenophiles.com for links to all of our social media pages. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It's a great way to help the show get noticed and hopefully attract more listeners. And please consider subscribing to the show so you always know when there's a new episode. If you like the show, please consider trying our other podcast, Trekker Talk, about sci-fi bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall, and Warlord Worlds, where we cover the comic creations of Mike Grell. In our opinions, these three creators are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. And talking about iTunes reviews and our other podcast brings us to an explanation of our contest. When we saw Ron Randall at a convention last year, we picked up a few extra signed Trekker items and gave them away during some fun contests, and we want to try to do something similar now. At Heroes Con, we plan to see both Mark Schultz, who we talk about here, as well as Mike Grell, who we talk about on our Warlords Worlds podcast. 
and we're hoping to pick up a couple of extra signed items from both of them and give those items away during the contest. We don't know yet how many items we'll be able to get signed, and of course there's always a chance one of them might cancel before the con, but let's all think positive thoughts. And we're sure many of you will want to get your names in the drawing, and the way to do that is by submitting an iTunes review for one or more of our shows. We have three shows, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. If you like the shows, please submit an iTunes review. For each review you submit, your name will go in the drawing. So if you like a show, submit a review, and you're in the drawing. You're listening to this show, so that's at least one of our shows that you like, so you can write a review and get your name in the drawing. If you like the other shows, go ahead and write reviews for those and get your name in the drawing multiple times. And in case you're wondering, if you've previously submitted reviews for our shows, then those reviews count as well. We'll be putting those names in the drawing too. Once you've submitted your review, or multiple reviews, please send us an email listing the various series we cover in the order of your favorites. Trekker, Xenozoic Tales, Green Arrow, John Sable, and The Warlord. Yes, we're including Trekker because we actually have one item left over from last fall that Ron Randall signed for us, and we're going to include it in the contest. And the reason we're asking for that list is so we can try to match winners with an item that they would want the most. No promises, but we'll do our best to give winners an item from as high on their favorites list as possible. And if you're outside of the U.S., when you email us your list of favorites, please also let us know what country you're in. Since we're in the U.S., iTunes only shows us reviews from listeners in the U.S. That means we have to take a few extra steps to locate the reviews if they are from a different country, and we need to know the name of the country to locate it. So remember, there are just two steps to enter. One, write an iTunes review, and two, send us an email ranking the titles we cover on our shows in the order of your favorites. Good luck to everyone. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll come back next time for another new episode of Xenozoics and Files. Xenophiles is not affiliated with Mark Schultz or the various companies that have published the series. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Movie Tunes, Background Music, Songs and Loops, Volume 2. Sound effects are taken from the albums Dinosaur Sound Effects, Amazing Sound Effects of Monsters and Dinosaurs, and Weapons Sound Effects. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended.